I entitled today's lesson, The Purpose in the Pain, When God Reveals His Plans of Restoration. And I want to begin with a quote by Eric Liddell, um, who was the guy that ran in Chariots of Fire. You guys remember that movie? Um, he was he went on later to become a missionary in China, and he ended up uh, living the rest of his life and dying in a Chinese internment camp. And what I didn't know, and I don't know how accurate it is, but I was reading some biography information on him, and the United States president arranged for some of the folks in the camp to be traded out and to have their freedom, and he passed up his opportunity to give it to a pregnant lady. And so the last letter he wrote to his wife he was talking about how difficult it was being in the camp, but a true martyr all the way through and through. And so I wanted to read some words from him. He said this circumstances may appear to wreck our lives and God's plans, but God is not helpless among the ruins. Our broken lives are not lost or useless. God's love is still working. He comes in, takes the calamity, and uses it victoriously, working out his wonderful plan of love. What we're about to open up into in this final part six of a six-part series in Amos is God's destruction of Israel. And you're going to say, why? Why is this all happening? And that's what we're going to talk about today but maybe in your life you feel like you've been blindsided or hit by something and it feels like you don't know how you're ever going to stand again and you wonder will there ever be restoration will i ever be brought back to where i was or could i ever move forward from this and i want to tell you that if you're a child of god the answer is absolutely yes here's the thing when you get hit by a terrible event in your life and i don't care whether it's cancer or whether it's uh, some disease of another sort, or let's say you just lose your job and you don't understand why, if something comes in and knocks your legs out from under you, you always wonder, was that God? Was that just me? Was that Satan? What was going on? Who, who just knocked me over? And you would think that in the Bible they would use a separate word, a different word, a total independent word or unique word that would say, this is when God knocks you over. This is when Satan knocks you over. There is no word like that. As a matter of fact, it's the same word for temptation than there is for trial. But what's interesting is the Bible says very clearly, when you are tempted, do not say that God is tempting me, for God tempts no one. So we understand that God does not tempt, but God does allow trial. What's the difference? The difference is motivation. The enemy Satan seeks to knock you down that you would be destroyed completely, annihilated. He seeks to tear you down that you would continue to plummet until you are ruined. He seeks to tear you down so that you will not rise again. God is the complete opposite. God will indeed tear you down for the purpose of growth. He will tear you down with the purpose of restoration. He will allow you to get your legs knocked out from under you so that you might rise to a higher level. He will consistently make sure that you will not die in that state. And when I say die, I'm talking about eternally. Because for some of us, the glory that we will receive with God is not seen on this side of life. It's seen on the other side. But make no mistake... Bad things happen, and we try to make a sense of it. And what we need to look at is the context 
and what was the motivation behind why we got knocked out. As we begin in Amos chapter 9, if you haven't turned there, please turn there, page 652, and the Bible's handed to you. What we are opening up into is the tail end of a tirade of judgment that God has upon Israel. So we're going to read just a few verses at the beginning, then we'll pray for the word, and then we'll tear it apart and see what God has for us today. Let me just begin reading in Amos chapter 9, verse 1 says this, I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake, bring them down on the heads of all the people and those who are left, I will kill with a sword. No one will get away. None will escape. I encourage you to read that to your kids for devotion tonight. Let's pray. <laughs> Heavenly Father, thank you for today. Thank you for uh, an eye opening experience with you to where we can engage with your word and Lord we can have a challenge and encouragement and Lord that you wrap up this incredible book of prophecy this incredible book through Amos with an amazing story of restoration an amazing story of hope an amazing story of love and I just want to thank you father for your graciousness for your compassion for your kindness in Jesus name we pray amen begins with this, I saw the Lord standing by the altar. What's an altar? We take it for granted sometimes that we know what an altar is. When we say in church in modern times, come to the altar, actually we just mean come to the front of the church because we don't have a better name for it. Okay? That's really what we mean. That's not an altar. Let's go old school. Let's go into the Old Testament. An altar was where the priest would offer the sacrifices for sins. You would picture like in your kitchen if you had an island in the middle with a cutting block idea. This is what the priest would stand by. It was a raised portion where you would bring the animal for sacrifice. The animal was killed and put upon the altar and then it was offered up to the Lord. Now, it's that type of altar we're talking about. So why, as God is he's about to launch into his final statement of judgment, why is he standing next to an altar? Well, I think it's a perfect place because an altar stands for a number of things. One of the things it stands for is what it was supposed to be was the center of what was going on at the temple. The temple was supposed to be the center of what was going on in Israel. So it was the very epicenter of what God was trying to do in the nation. So what a perfect play to, place to talk about judgment. The other thing that the altar stands for is sacrifice and atonement for sin or covering for sin. It was supposed to be the place that God was honored. It was supposed to be the place where sin was taken care of. And yet Israel had fallen into such a state of disrepair. They had fallen into such a state of sin. They had fallen into such a state of chaos that God was standing next to the altar and saying, what have you done with what I asked you to do? Look at this. I'm standing here by an altar. And what altar was he standing by? Not the one in Jerusalem. That's in the south. Remember the nation was split in two. There's the north and the south. We're in the north. So it's not Jerusalem. Where is he standing by? Likely one of the two holy places that they set up in the north against God's will. 
in Bethel, the city of Bethel, the city of Dan. They had set up two bogus places of worship that were half into God, and they also had a golden cow in them. They're half idolatrous. So it's there that God says, what have you done with what I asked you to do? Are you kidding me? I'm right here in the middle of my temple where I'm supposed to be honored, and I'm completely upset. I'm standing here at the altar where things should be right and they're all wrong. Therefore, I will bring it down on the heads of Israel. And that's where he moves next. I saw the Lord standing by the altar and he said, strike the tops of the pillars so that the thresholds shake. Bring them down on the heads of all the people. Now, the thresholds and the pillars were what framed up the door and it would hold up the ceiling. And what God is saying is he's saying, strike the top, rip it down so the whole thing collapses. Now, how is he going to do that? Who's he talking to when he says strike it down? Is he talking to the angels? Is he talking to the commander of the army of God? Who's he talking to? Well, you find out that in 60 years time, Assyria comes and knocks it down. So he's talking about using an enemy territory as his weapon. So he's telling them, strike the temple down and bring it down on the heads of the people. Who is it falling on? You've got two choices of people in the temple. You either have worshipers or priests, right? That's not really who's supposed to be in the temple. If it's the worshipers, here's what I believe he's saying. It's falling on the heads of people that were worshiping wrongly. And he's saying, you want to construct your own religion. You want to make this up. You don't want to do it my way. You want to do it your way. You want to make up your own rules. You want to do your own thing. Then you know what's going to happen to that religion? It's going to fall in on itself and it's going to collapse upon the top of you. And I am the one that's going to knock it down. If it's the priest, then he's bringing down the whole thing on the heads of leadership. That he's saying, you should have been the one to hold the line. You should have been the one that sought after righteousness. You should have been the one that held it properly. And you didn't. Therefore, I will bring it down on your head. He said, once it falls down, those who are left, I will kill with a sword, clearly through the Assyrian Empire. Not one will get away. None will escape. In order to explain how much people can't escape, he uses five examples to follow. He says this. Though they dig down to the depths of Sheol, Sheol can also be referred to as the grave, to Hades, to hell, You can whatever you want to use. He's saying, I don't care if you guys dig all the way to hell, I'll go down and I'll grab you and I will bring you back. From there, my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, there I'll bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Mount Carmel. That is the place where there was limestone caves to hide in. There was forests that you could hide in. He said, "Uh, even there, I will hunt them down and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command Leviathan the serpent to rise up and bite them there. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, there I will command the sword to slay them. I will fix my eyes upon them for evil and not for good. That's pretty extreme. What's he saying? He said, you remember that protective eye that I have on all of you? The the reason why you guys sleep at night, Israel? The reason why I'm always looking over you and making sure that the enemies don't creep up on you without me knowing it? You remember that protective gaze? Now that same exact eyesight, that same exact perspective, I'm looking at you for your destruction. You can't escape me. You can't walk away. I see you and I'm taking you down. 
So let's revisit the issue. Why is God so mad at Israel? Well, let's do the obvious one first. Israel was corrupt. Israel was hurting other people. Israel was exploiting the poor. Not only were they not helping other nations, they were harming other nations. And they had completely imploded spiritually. They were doing it all wrong. They were selfish. They were mean and they were nasty to the people around them. What would you call a parent that only raises dysfunctional spoiled brats? Call that an unfit parent. If God allowed his kids to continue like that, what kind of parent would he be? Absolutely not. God said, no, my kids will not act like that. You will be shut down. You're not going to harm other people. You're not going to exploit the poor. You're not going to tear apart the needy. That's not happening in my house. So, yes, I will stop you. That's the obvious reason. Second reason, the one I want to talk about today is this. God takes the idea of stewardship very seriously. What is stewardship? Stewardship is when someone entrusts you with something and you're supposed to do it for them. Right. So if you're a manager of a store, the owner has given you the stewardship over the store and they're going to hold you accountable for how you handle it. God takes that stuff really, really, really seriously. How do we know? Jesus told two parables, one in Matthew 25, one in Luke 19. And what he told was two stories that were very similar. So I'm just going to grab one of them as an example. A king was about to leave a country. And he took three of his servants and he says, hey, guys, I'm going to take off. And I know you got some issues with me, but I'll tell you what, I'm going to entrust you each with something. I'm going to entrust the first guy with five gold talents. I'm going to entrust the second guy with two. I'm going to entrust the third guy with one. When I leave, here's your job, your task. Put it to work and earn me more money off what I just gave you. He says, everybody clear on that? Yes, he takes off. Comes back. Hey, what'd you do with what I gave you? The guy with five. He said, step up. What do you got? He said, well, I had five. I made five. He said, nicely done. Excellent work. As a matter of fact, he didn't get mad at him that he didn't make 25. He didn't get mad at him that he didn't make 100. He doubled it. He took five. He made five. He said, excellent. That's what I wanted. He said, hey, guy with two, get up here. What did you do? And he said, well, I made two more. He said, that's awesome. That's amazing. Excellent. Well done. You didn't need to make five. You didn't make, need to make with the other guy. I gave you two. You made two. That's excellent. All right. One guy. You get up here. What do you got? Nothing. What do you mean, nothing? You didn't do anything with what I gave you. Well, I got your coin back. There you go. He's like, what? Didn't I not ask you to get to work? Yeah, but I was I was kind of freaked out about the whole process. I didn't know what to do. I don't know. I didn't know if you were really into it or not. And, and he starts coming up with all these excuses. And then what is the king's response? It says here in Scripture, throw that worthless servant out. Can you get any clearer on that? I guess he takes it pretty seriously, huh? When I look at this, I begin to read scriptures like the salt and light passage, which I'm going to talk about all year long because that's kind of the theme of our year. And it says this, you are the salt of the earth. He's talking about the church. He's talking about us. But if the salt loses its saltiness, how can it be made salty again? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled by men. Wow. Think he takes stewardship seriously? Yeah. Okay, here's a mistake that we make in our minds. 
We think in our minds that God created the Jewish race because he was bored. Is he's looking out over the world and he's like, man, I got an awful lot of nations out there. I got an awful lot of people groups. I'm kind of into them. You know what would be awesome? If I made a Jew, that would be great. Because I need someone I can get really into. So really, I'm not into everybody, but I really want to be super into the Jews. So I'm going to make Jews because I got nothing else to do. Okay, no, that's not right. You understand? That's God did not create the Jews because he had nothing else going on. God created the Jews for a very specific reason. What was the specific reason? He said it to Abraham. It's called the Abrahamic covenant. He said, through you, all nations on earth will be blessed. So, who did he love? All nations on earth. Why did he create the Jewish people? So that they would be his communication to the world of his love. He would, they were supposed to be the hub by which he blessed the whole world. So they had a very specific purpose. Is God allowed to do that? Is he allowed to make a people and say, hey, you're going to be my key representatives. I want you to take it to the world. If I want to show them my love, I'm going to do it through you. If I want to show them what I'm like, I'm going to show it through you. As a matter of fact, I'm going to bring the Messiah through you, and everybody's going to be blessed through you. Is God allowed to do that? Of course he's allowed to do that. He did it with the Jews. What's the problem? They weren't doing it. And not only were they not doing it, not only was the world not receiving the message, not only was the world not receiving his love, they turned it to their own selfish gain. Do you think God can get mad about that? Yeah, it's the same thing with the church. When God created the church, which we are a part of, he said, go be salt and light. In other words, if I want a representative for me in a neighborhood, I'm going to grab a Christian and I'm going to plop them down in the middle of the neighborhood. Now, you're supposed to spread the message and love on people and take care of them as if I was there myself. What if you don't do that? Then why in the world are you there? Does that make sense? We're not fulfilling our created intent. Is God allowed to get mad about that? Yeah, of course he's going to get mad about that because he has stuff he's doing in this world. And people are dying. People are lonely. People are hurting. And God is in the business of mending hearts and changing lives and transforming the world. So he wants us to do the job he asked us to do. Well, Israel had completely turned it upside down and they were not doing that. In this year of world impact, we're supposed to be doing that stuff. That's what we are here for. But what happens if you lose focus and get totally distracted and go off the deep end? What if you've gone totally selfish? What if you've completely wandered the wrong way? What if you are completely dysfunctional? What's God going to do then? Well, if you're a kid of his, I'll tell you exactly what he's going to do. He's going to prune you. You guys know what pruning is? All right, let me give you a couple examples. When my parents divorced, my dad moved down to Lodi. Anybody ever been to Lodi? All right, fantastic. Not too far away. From our house, we lived in El Dorado Hills. It was an hour away. I would go down, and and Lodi always looked to me like kind of small-town America. It kind of had all these trees that were lined with mulberry trees, and... And it was kind of, it was all a little bit flat so I could ride my skateboard or my bike. And it was a really great, great city. I loved the place. My brother-in-law still lives there. Well, one thing I noticed that was really weird about it is they all had the same trees lining. These mulberry trees were lining like every street. 
Well, then all of a sudden they would come to pruning time and they would hack the living daylights out of these trees. They looked gnarly and knobby and ugly. And I remember going, man, who's the decorator in this city? This is the ugliest place I've ever seen. What's going on with these trees? And then I found out this weekend, the mulberry tree is the fastest growing tree in the world. And sure enough, I swear to you, you literally blink and the tree grows. I was dry. I remember like a week later, I go and visit my dad. I turn around. The trees are in full bloom. It was like, whoa, how did that thing grow back like that? It had full foliage. It was beautiful. It was huge. And every year it had this tremendous growth. So every year it had to be cut down. And when it got cut down, it sure looked messed up. But why was it cut down every season? So that it would do what it was built to do. Grow and become beautiful. So then sure enough, two weeks ago, I was talking with a guy here at church, and he owns a tree trimming business. His name's Chuck Roberts. So I'm talking with Susie, my wife, and she said, we need our trees trimmed. So I get in touch with Chuck, and I said, hey, Chuck, can you come out and take a look at these trees? So sure enough, he comes on out, and he takes a look at it. And this guy is like Rain Man of trees. Okay, I mean, it's kind of freaky. He's a total genius. He walks in and he knows all trees by sight. So he just walks to my backyard and starts naming all the different trees and exactly how they grow and how big they grow and where they grow. He's been doing it for 33 years. So he walks in. He knows everything about all these trees. So he starts giving me recommendations. I said, what do I got to do? He said, well, here's the deal. See that tree over there? That's your neighbor's tree. It's reaching over and it's intertwining with your tree over here. It's going to grow and it's going to get heavier and it's going to lean on your tree and it's going to eventually snap off your branches. You got to trim that one back. See that one over there? That one's getting top heavy over here. And if a big storm comes up, it will be too much for it. It will break off and it will hit your house. See that tree over there? That tree's got to be removed completely because all it's doing is blocking out the sun. Now, do I need to make the little Christian tie-ins for you? Or are they pretty obvious? All right, I'll do it anyway. Here we go. Sometimes we as Christians get really, really dysfunctional. As a matter of fact, we're not only not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we're leaning heavily on other people and we're ending up crowding them out. And if we continue to grow in this horrible fashion, we're going to lean so heavy on other people, we're going to snap off their branches and that's not okay with God. So he's going to trim you back. There are times when we get super dysfunctional where we grow top heavy on only the areas we want to focus on and we get really messed up. And God says, if a big storm comes in your life, It's going to knock you completely over and rip out the roots. We're not going to have that. Cut it back. Then sometimes there's people in this world, and it's not going to be the children of God, but there's people in this world that all they're doing is blocking out the sun. And he said, root it out completely. Dig out the stump. Grind it out. You're done. Here's the deal. Does pruning sound nice? I would imagine trees aren't all into pruning. Okay? I would imagine trees aren't cool with a guy coming up with a big old chainsaw, right? It's going to get ugly. It's going to get nasty. And we feel the same way about God. But what is the purpose of pruning? Greater growth. Every time. If you are a child of God, everything that God does with your life is for the purpose of your benefit. And he, it's interesting. He will not leave you. Notice how the Bible talks about this stuff, about hard times. Jesus said, I want to promise you, you're going to have hard times. And then before he leaves the earth, he says to his disciples, hey, just want you guys to know, I'm going to be with you always. 
even to the end of the age. Meaning I'm never going to abandon you. I'll always be there with you. Then when you read the Old Testament, you read stuff in Psalms where it says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. You guys remember that? What does it say about the valley of shadow of death? We are going through it. Not living in it. Not camping in it. Not dying in it. We're going through it. God consistently says, listen, I will see you through. Yes, bad things will happen. Bad times will come. Horrible disease will come upon you. But I will be there. And I will make sure that whatever happens to you, any demolishment that has to happen to you or that I cause will be for your greater growth. Because here's the truth. The world that we live in, this short little life that's maybe what, 80, 90 years. This short life is nothing in comparison to the growth time, the eternity that we're about to face with Jesus Christ. So he said, yeah, I'm going to do an awful lot of pruning here, but your time of glory and restoration is beyond your wildest dreams. I will never leave you. I did not tear you down to be forgotten. I tore you down that you might be who I created you to be. And that is what he's doing with Israel. Amen? Amen. Let's go back into the word of God and also the fill in the blank in front of you. It's simply this. God's destruction of his children. You say, well, that's a really extreme phrase. Well, when it happens to you, you're going to know why I use an extreme phrase like that. The destruction of his children is always for a greater resurrection. The destruction of his children, God's destruction of his children is always for a greater resurrection. Folks, let's be honest about it. You can't raise from the dead unless you are dead. Oh, we all get on that? All right. We move forward. Verse 5 in Amos chapter 9. It says this. The Lord, the Lord Almighty is what the NIV says. That's a poor translation. A better translation is Yahweh, the Lord of hosts. Hosts means a bunch of people. Usually it's referring to an army. So what it actually is trying to paint a picture for you is Yahweh, the personal name of God, the king of the armies of God. It's actually trying to create a military view. So here he says, Yahweh, the commander of the army of God, he who touches the earth and it melts, all who live in it mourn, the whole land rises like the Nile and sinks like the river of Egypt. You guys remember last week I told you that the Nile literally raises 20 feet annually and lowers. It's actually an ebbing and flowing river. That's what he's talking about. He who builds his lofty palace in the heavens and sets its foundation on the earth, who calls for the waters of the sea and pours them out over the face of the land, Yahweh is his name. Okay. Why is that in the Bible? Okay, God's been... Flying down the corridor of judgment for nine chapters and all of a sudden he stops and has a little mandolin and starts playing about how great God is. You're like, what? Where did that come from? I thought we were talking about death and destruction. Why? Why do we suddenly add in and God is good? Okay. What is that for? A lot of people believe it was a hymn. Here's why. Because God periodically stops Israel and he says, do you remember who you're messing with? I'm God. Really big guy. Hey, you ever see me? Look at me. I'm God. You're not. Hi, remind you of that. Okay, you keep challenging me as if you're God, but you're really not God because I created you and I know that. So I'm God. I'm the only God. You're not him. Stop messing with me. 
Does that make sense? I'm really big, you're really little, I will swoosh you. Then he has to correct their view of themselves in verse 7. Are not you Israelites the same to me as the Cushites? Who are the Cushites? They're the Nubians. Does that help? Nope, sure doesn't. Okay. They're the people that lived in southern Egypt, Sudan, Ethiopia. They were the dark-skinned folks that came from the southern region and engaged with Israel. What does God say? Are not you Israelites the same to me as them? In other words, I love them and I love you, period. They understand that God loves all the nations of the world. We seem to keep forgetting that. The purpose of Israel was that all the nations would be loved on. All the nations would be blessed. God said, wait a second, you guys think that everything's about you. It's not. I love the Cushites. Just like I love you. I took care of them. I took care of you. He said, did I not bring you up from Israel? Did I not bring Israel up from Egypt? He said, in other words, I took you out of bondage. That was supposed to be a big deal. Unfortunately, you guys have made it just another migration. You want to talk about migrations? I took the Philistines from Crete, from Kaftor. I brought them out of bondage. I did it for them. Why? To love on them. I brought the Arameans or the Syrians from Kir, which is Mesopotamia. I said, I raised them out of bondage. I've done that for a bunch of nations. So, surely the eyes of the sovereign Lord are on the sinful kingdom. In other words, if there's sin in any kingdom, I'm going to know it. I love all the kingdoms. I love you too. In Israel, you're full of sin. And you think that just because you're my special children that I'm not, I'm going to ignore your sin? No. I'm going to address it. And he was saying, the next phrase is interesting. He said, I will destroy it from the face of the earth. Meaning if there is a nation that was as sinful as you, Israel, I would wipe it off the face of the earth never to be heard from again. But then look at the next phrase. Yet I will not totally destroy the house of Jacob. Why? He said, because I keep my word and I told your forefathers that I wouldn't. It's the only reason why you're still here. It's not because you're righteous. It's not because you're nice. It's because I promised that I would keep working with you. For I will give the command declares the Lord. I will shake the house of Israel among all the nations as grain is shaken in a sieve and not a pebble will reach the ground. All the sinners among my people will die by the sword. All those who say disaster won't overtake or meet us. Okay, who's the judgment really coming for? Did you guys see that? The sinners in Israel. So were they all sinners? Were there none righteous? No, there were some. But 60 years after he says this, the Assyrian nation wipes out the whole nation and only leaves a little tiny remnant. Are you telling me that good guys got knocked over when the bad guys got taken out? That's exactly what I'm telling you. In other words, God's judgment is for the wicked alone. But there are consequences of their sin that ends up impacting the righteous. I don't know if that makes sense to you. God was coming and sweeping through to wipe out Israel's wicked. But in order to do so, he had to uproot the whole nation. Therefore, some good guys ended up getting blasted for the bad guy's sin. But he said, I'll make no mistake. I'm not here to wipe out the innocent. 
I'm here to take out the sinners. They will die by the sword. And not just any sinners, but what was his last phrase? Those who say disaster will not overtake, disaster will not meet us. What does that sound like? Sounds like arrogance to me, does it not? Let me ask you this. Who irritated Jesus the most on earth? Was it the people with tons of sin in their lives? No. Those are actually his buddies. Who did he have a problem with? The Pharisees. Who were the Pharisees? The religious arrogant. I mean, you've got to really allow that to soak in. Who really bugs God? But the people that are like, it's not about me, whatever. And all this whole sinning thing, I don't have an issue with it. That's everybody else. And if God's going to come with judgment, it's got nothing to do with me. I'm going to be hanging out in my big house over here and doing my own thing. So all you can just go to hell. God's like, excuse me? What did you just say? Oh, you mean you're going to hell? Is that what you just said? Because you think you're going to escape my judgment. You think it's not about me. You think that this whole world, why do you keep thinking that the world revolves around you? Why is it all about you? No, 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 no. You think that just because you're rich and wealthy and just because you think that everyone else thinks you're a big deal, that I think you're a big deal. You're not. And I will take you out. You think that you've got it all nailed down and that you are spiffy clean in your righteousness. You're not. You're a sinner just like everybody else. Quit faking it. Own up to it and be honest about it because that's what my children do. But for those of you that are arrogant, I have a word for you. It's called disaster. And then all of a sudden in verse 11, there's a dramatic change. It's like you're flying a million miles an hour one direction. Hairpin turn, you turn the opposite. It's so bizarre. It's so shocking that it threw some people when they were doing a study of this book. But this is how he closes nine chapters of judgment. It's this, verse 11. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. What day is he talking about? I'll tell you this, it hasn't happened yet. This is a future prophecy. This is a speaking of a future yet to come. In that day, what day? Well, probably the day that Jesus returns. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. Who's David? King David, David and Goliath. Remember that guy? The man after God's own heart? The guy that played the little harp? The guy that was a king? The guy that was a warrior? The guy that was all following that? David was their hallmark of their big dog. And he said, David's dynasty used to be really huge. I told him that through him the Messiah would come into the world. And I'm not breaking my promise, but do you guys realize what you've done with his dynasty? The nation ripped in two. You made it a shambles. Now you got a north and a south. That was never my goal. You've made his dynasty reduce from a massive empire to a teeny little tent. The word used there for David's tent is a little lean-to you put up in the field to keep out of the rain. You put up some sticks and you lay some branches on it. He said, that's what you've reduced it to. But make no mistake, I'm not done with you. I will take that little tiny tent and I will make it into the greatest empire you've ever seen. In that day, I will restore David's fallen tent. I will repair its broken places. I will restore its ruins. I will build it as it used to be. 
Why? So that they may possess the remnant of Edom. That's another neighboring nation. And all the nations that bear my name, declares the Lord, who will do these things. What's his point? When I restore Israel, I will restore them back to what they were supposed to do. And their umbrella, by the Messiah reigning through the nation Israel, their umbrella will extend over all the nations on earth, and all nations on earth will be blessed. I will gather Gentiles from all over the world that will become my children because of the blessing of Israel. Gentiles will be grafted into the family of God, and indeed we've seen that that has been the case. Ever since Jesus arrived on the earth the first time. This passage is quoted by James about talking about how the Gentiles were going to become God's kids. The majority of us here are Gentiles in fulfillment, partially, of this type of prophecy. Because God has loved the whole world and Israel was supposed to be that light. Supposed to be that blessing. Supposed to be that salt. So he says this. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when the reaper will be overtaken by the plowman and the planter by the one treading grapes. In other words, I'm going to bless you so incredibly that right when you get done clearing out a field with all the incredible harvest I gave you, it's already grown up again. You've got to clear it all out again, and it grows up again. I will so abundantly bless you that what? New wine will drip from the mountains and flow from the hills. I will bring back my exiled people, Israel. They will rebuild the ruined cities. They will live in them. They will plant vineyards and drink their wine. They will make gardens and eat their fruit. Does that sound like they're at peace? You don't build gardens when you're at war. I will plant Israel in their own land. Never again to be uprooted from the land I have given them, says the Lord your God. Why was Israel being demolished? It was being demolished in a pruning way. But it was pruned so far down, it looked like there was only a tiny little sprig sticking out of the ground. And you thought, it's never going to come back. It's never going to grow again. But God always knew it would grow again. That was the point. The point was always that he was going to bring new life to Israel. To do what they were supposed to do. To be able to be the victorious nation that he wanted them to be. To be the light of the world. What is our calling? Our calling is to be that light. To be that salt. And yeah, God's going to go through some pretty rough pruning of us along the way. But make no mistake. God does not tear you down to abandon you. And I want you to lock that in your heart. God will only allow things to devastate you with an eye towards raising you again. He loves you that much and He will not walk away. For He is your God. And the Bible says that nothing can separate you from the love of Christ. Neither height nor depth a principality, or power, and it goes on and on and on. Nothing's cutting in on his plan. Nothing's, the Satan, when you're a little sprig, Satan's not going to run by with Roundup and, and, and take off. God knows. He knows how far you can go. He knows what he needs to do. We have to trust our lives into the hand of the Master Gardener. 
And He will raise us with new growth like we were supposed to have. Amen? Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank You for this morning. Thank You for Your incredible love, Your grace, Your ability to restore us even from impossible situations. There have been many here, Lord, that felt like they were going to die a hopeless death. And you swept in and rescued them and took them from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of light. There are many here, Lord, that have stumbled about trying to do things our own way. And you trimmed us back that we would do it your way, that we would finally have the life that you desire. Lord, thank you for not abandoning us. Thank you for not leaving us. Thank you for your incredible promise that your children are so near to your heart that you will be with us always, even to the end of the age. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.